My name is Kevin, and uh, this morning I get to introduce our preacher today, as well as a new pastoral staff member. John Reeser was the lead pastor at Bethel. Before that, he served at Fort Langley E. Free, and he is now on staff with us at North Langley. He and his wife, Emily, I have got to know very well over the last seven seven months. Uh, it's crazy how fast it's been, but uh, I have come to really love and appreciate John, both as a friend and as a pastor, and I'm so excited that he and I are both going going to be launching this Aldergrove campus together, and uh, he's going to be an associate there at Aldergrove, and we are having a lot of fun working together, uh, spending time in the office and making plans for what this campus is going to look like. So I'm going to invite John up. He's going to be sharing, and uh, I just want to uh, introduce you. So let's give it up for John. John's got a little bit of a fan club here, I think, today, so uh, that's amazing. So, John, let me pray for you as you share the word with us today. So, God, thank you so much for our friend and our brother, John, and that you have brought him to, to be a part of this, this uh, staff family and this church family and this congregation family, and that, that you are doing amazing things. Um, God, thank you that, that he and I are going to get to work together co-laborers together for the kingdom, God. And today, as he gets to share the word with us, Lord, I pray that, that our hearts would receive what you have for us, God. May his words be clear, Lord. Um, Lord, use him as your tool and your instrument today to advance the kingdom. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Blessings, John. Oh, well, good morning, everyone here, all those joining us online. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, as Kevin said, I am the pastor from Bethel. Uh, some of you might have heard the story, uh, but in case you haven't, just a, a quick recap. In 2019, I was a pastor looking for a church, and Bethel was a church looking for a pastor. They had gone through a bit of a discernment process and, and, and felt that God was leading them to think and act like a church plant. And when I heard that, I was super excited. I thought that was just a fantastic, fantastic thing, and I was uh, just so excited to be able to partner. And over the next couple of years, uh, we prayed to discern where, how God was going to bring this about. And then we heard that you at North Langley were wanting to plant a church in Aldergrove. And so us wanting to think and act like a church plant in Aldergrove, you wanting to plant in Aldergrove led to a series of conversations, a lot of meetings, a lot of prayer, and here we are. As of July 1st, our church is merged, and I'm so excited to see what God has in store in this next season. A little bit about me. Uh, I'm the oldest of three kids. I grew up in Edmonton. That's where I met my wonderful wife, Emily. We were married 18 years ago. A year after we were married, we moved to Korea. We were there for six years, and then just two months before we left Korea, our son was born. Uh, we moved back here, both went to seminary, and as Kevin said, we're at Fort Langley, Efree, Bethel, and now here. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Uh, would you join me in prayer as we look into God's word? So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask you would make us aware of your presence, that you would give us open ears and soft hearts to hear what you're saying, and that we would respond, that you would transform us and shape us to be people that look more like you than we do right now. So we just thank you for this time and ask that you would lead us and guide us. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke. And for four weeks, it was different kinds of things. It was Jesus talking to Pharisees, talking about kingdom, and Spencer preached a sermon about how Jesus is the stronger man. 
Corey preached on how leadership should be humble, genuine, and outward-focused. Tim preached on how not all lights are equal. And Ben preached on how the antidote to bad leadership is apprenticeship to Jesus. Uh, Now, last week, I was in with the kids' ministry, uh, and just as an aside, you have a phenomenal group of people working with the kids here at North Langley. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. With Michelle and Carrie and Christy and Carly and all of the volunteers, just phenomenal people investing in the lives of the next generation. And so, as I say this, if you feel a, a tug on your heart as God is leading you to get involved, that would be great. But there's just a wonderful team But because I was in kids' ministry last week, I missed the sermon, so I had to catch up on it online. Um, And it seemed to be that Kevin was preaching about how he liked the movie Mean Girls. (laughs) But I continued listening, and it was actually about how God is a good father who calls us forgiven, loved, and cared for. And this week, we are looking at how to waste a life. You did hear me correctly. It's a nice, light summer topic, how to waste a life. So if you woke up this morning and you were thinking, have I wasted my life? Perfect. That's what we're talking about. If you woke up this morning and that is not what you were thinking, the Yorkson campus is having a picnic this morning. (laughs) And if you leave right now, you might catch the end of it. Now, it's a heavy topic, have I wasted my life? But just because it's heavy doesn't mean it's bad. I think most of us have asked ourselves that question at one point or another. Have I wasted my life? Have what I have strived to achieve and what I, is what I'm doing, is it going to be worth anything in the end? So it's a heavy question, but it's not bad. So that's where Jesus brings us today. And so Val read it earlier, but just to set the stage for Luke chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples. But a huge crowd has gathered, and there's Pharisees there, and people are overhearing. And so it'd be kind of like if I just started talking to this section over here, and I'm looking over here, and we're talking, and what I'm saying is meant for you, but I'm aware that everyone else is listening as well. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's talking to the disciples, but there's thousands of people kind of overhearing and they're listening in and he's talking about kingdom and leadership and talking to the Pharisees. And all of a sudden there's an interruption and the guy goes, hey, um, excuse me, Jesus? Yeah, over here. Can you tell my brother to share the inheritance with me? Now, just a bit of historical context. In Jesus' time, when there was an inheritance to be given out, the oldest son would receive twice as much as anyone else. As an oldest son myself, I think we should bring this back. (laughs) And we have petitions at the back if you just want to sign those on your way out. I'm just kidding, that's not what we're about today. But there's this guy and he just asks Jesus, hey, can can you help me out here? And we don't really know if what he's saying to Jesus is, you know, that whole oldest son thing's not fair, I want to divide it equally. And maybe he's asking for more than culturally what was supposed to be his. Or maybe his brother took the entirety of the inheritance and he's saying, Hey, Jesus, I got nothing. Could you tell my brother to give me something here? And so he's trying to fix an injustice. 
So we don't know if he's trying to get more. We don't know if he didn't get anything and he's just trying to get something. All we know is that he asks Jesus. So what we have is a problem. We have Jesus. And so we expect a solution. Problem plus Jesus equals solution. And what we expect is for Jesus to to kind of pause and let silence settle on the crowd. And then for him to say something like, divide the inheritance in half. And the man is happy and the Pharisees are angry and everybody claps and we're impressed. But what Jesus does is he refuses to engage. He's almost dismissive. He says, who made me a judge? He was a rabbi. He could have spoken into this, but he he refuses to engage. Now, usually problem plus Jesus means solution, but here Jesus doesn't talk at all about the inheritance. Why is that? I don't know for sure, but I think there's two reasons. First of all, we hear the son ask Jesus to intervene. And what we hear is, is one son speaking, but we don't hear the other. We know the request but we don't know the context. But what Jesus sees is the heart. He sees past what what the man is saying. He sees past the situation and he sees that what's actually motivating this is a heart of greed. It's the desire for more without needing more. It's kind of the definition of greed, wanting more but not needing more. So Jesus says, okay, you're, you're asking about the inheritance, but actually what's going on here is greed. The heart of the issue is that it's an issue of the heart. So we're not talking injustice here. We're talking greed. So I think that's, that's the first one. Secondly, have you ever seen a kid talk to a police officer? What is the one question the kids will always ask a police officer? Maybe, maybe it's just me, but what do you think? What is the one question kids will always ask a police officer? Can I have your gun? And what is the answer? No, oh, there's no yeses. Okay, just confirming. Now, is a police officer mean or cruel or unfair to not hand their gun to an elementary school student? No. And why is that? It's because the gun is part of the power of a police officer, but it comes with the authority of the person as well. And so to hand over the gun is to hand over the power separated from the authority. And power in the hands of an elementary school student, that kind of power is dangerous because power plus immaturity causes problems. And here what we have is a request from a man saying, Jesus, tell my brother to do this thing. Jesus, can I borrow your gun? I've got this thing that needs happening. But Jesus senses that the heart of it is greed, and Jesus is not going to lend his power to a heart filled with greed. Just like a police officer does not lend their gun to a child. And how often are my prayers like that? Say, God, I have a situation. There's something going on in my life here. And the solution is you need to fix them. So God, would you go to that person and deal with them because then my life's going to be better. 
And oftentimes when I pray a prayer like that, what I find is God actually says, okay, we're going to set the situation aside and we're going to deal with your heart. And, and oftentimes the prayers we pray, the reason that they are not answered is because we pray just to get what we want or we pray to fix someone else. And God says, okay, we're going to set this aside and we're going to look at your heart. And it's amazing how often that when God looks at our heart and when we're transformed at a heart level, how often the situation is not so urgent anymore. So Jesus sidesteps the issue. He addresses the greed, but he doesn't lend his power. And then he speaks to the crowd. It's kind of like if you imagine a teacher supervising an exam. And the teacher is walking kind of up and down the rows of desks. And then they stop and they look at your exam. Please remember to read all of the instructions. And you go, what did I do? And what this one person has done is, is relevant to everyone. And so this man asks for Jesus to intervene on the inheritance. And he says, I'm not your judge. Beware of greed. And so what is the lesson from one becomes the lesson for all. And Jesus says to watch out for greed. And he tells a parable, which is just a story with a message. And it's pretty simple as far as parables go. There was a rich man who got richer he wanted to build some barns, but then he died, and God said he handled the whole thing poorly. Do you feel like this applies to you? Not really. I feel like we can pretty easily excuse ourselves. I'm not rich. I'm not a property owner. I haven't come into a massive windfall of money. Early retirement is not on the table, and I'm not undergoing a building project. So this parable clearly does not apply to me, but I hope that the rich retired farmers are paying attention. So thank you for the sermon. Let me know when the next one begins. It seems simple at first, but it's not quite so easy to excuse ourselves here. First of all, who is the bad guy in this parable? The bad guy is the farmer, but is the bad guy a bad guy, you know? He's not mean. He's not cruel. He's practical. He's wise. He's got kind of a long-range vision. This guy's not really a bad guy. He's kind of my hero. I mean, he is rich, and he's able to, to get so much money that he's able to consider early retirement and have all of his needs taken care of for the rest of his life. I mean, this guy is my hero, and he's probably a, a lot of our heroes here. A lot of our heroes. We like this guy. <laughs> this guy is what we aspire to for retirement. This is the picture that we are presented Eat, drink, and be merry for as long as you live. This is the best. If this guy was in our church, we would ask him, how'd you do it? Can we have coffee? Because I want to do this too. This guy's the best. And so what is Jesus' problem? I mean, he's not that bad a guy. One thing our family enjoys is board games. Are there any board gamers here? Card gamers? Yeah. yeah. Uh, one game we like these days is the Crew Deep Sea Expedition. 
It's kind of a cooperative game. It's really fun. But growing up, I played a lot of Monopoly, Risk, and Settlers of Catan. Now, Monopoly is one of those games that I don't really play anymore because I don't like it. You know who's going to win in 15 minutes, but it takes you three hours to confirm it. <laughs> and so I don't like Monopoly, but I did play a lot of it growing up. Now, what I want you to do is just kind of give a, a quiet thumbs up to your neighbor if you have ever, at any point in your life, won one game of Monopoly. If you've ever won one, just give a thumbs up to your neighbor. If not, that's okay, just don't play anymore. <laughs> but now what we're going to do is, what I want you to do is, is wait for the whole instructions, is that I want you to stand up, wave your arms, and give a shout if you have won a game of Monopoly and you have used the proceeds, the money, the property, all of that stuff, to put a down payment on a house. <laughs> Nobody. Has anyone ever won a game of Risk and then you've flown to New York to go to the UN and you show up and you say, hey guys, thanks for coming, but we're just gonna clear this whole thing up. I'm the ruler of the world now. I conquered the whole thing. Or if you win a game of Catan, you hop a ferry and you go to Vancouver Island and you say, I'm here to do some infrastructure. We're going to build some roads, some cities, and some villages. Of course not. Because when you play a game of Monopoly or Risk or Settlers of Catan, everything goes back in the box. Nothing translates to life. And if you were to talk to someone who felt like it did translate to life, it wouldn't just be a harmless misunderstanding. You would say you have fundamentally missed the point of a game and you don't understand what's real anymore. And that is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if you have made wealth the point of your life and comfort the goal of that wealth, you have missed the point. That if comfort is your goal and you trust money to get there, everything you think is an accomplishment goes back in the box, and you've done nothing. So this parable isn't for the, the farmers or the retired or for the rich. It is for whoever, Jesus says in verse 21. He said, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So this, all of a sudden, is not a parable that's so easy to shift to someone else. All of a sudden, I think, I think I see myself. To see wealth for your own benefit, or sorry, to use wealth only for your own benefit, it means that my comfort is the most important thing in the world, and money is going to help me accomplish the most important thing of the, in the world. Money will take care of me. Money will give me security. Money is all that I need. And when we trust money like that, what we have done is we have, we have taken God and we have replaced God with money because money will take care of me. And it becomes an idol for us. See, it isn't that this guy, this farmer, he's not a bad guy because he's cruel or evil, but because he spent his life 
in the pursuit of something that means nothing. And Jesus warns us. He says this is how it will be for whoever does it like this, whoever lives like this. Now what does he mean, this is how it will be? The temptation can be to think that the death of this rich man is the punishment. But death isn't the punishment, it's just what happens. The man was rich and alive, and he thought he had years left to live, but in reality he had hours. And for all of us here, at one point in our lives, dying is the next thing we will do. And we might think we might have years, or we might have hours. And how will we spend that time? See, it wasn't the dying that was the punishment, that was just the next thing. But with death came judgment. And who loves the idea of God as judge? Who's just like, that's my favorite part of God, is God as judge. It's kind of the opposite. We don't, we don't love this idea that God as a judge to stand up, stand up there and say right or wrong, good or bad. We don't love that. We kind of want to take a step away from it. But judgment is something that happens at the end of everything. Let me give an example. Sermon ends, you stand up, and you walk out, and you bump into someone you haven't seen for a while. What is the first question you will ask them? How are you? How is your year? How is your job? How is school? You're going to say, render judgment for me. Is your life good or bad? Is your job good or bad? And if you tell me good, I will celebrate with you. And if you tell me bad, I will say, let me pray with you. And so we judge everything at the end. How was your coffee? How was the movie? How was the sermon? A little long, but it was okay. <laughs> we judge everything at the end in our lives. So it should come as no surprise that judgment comes at the end of our lives as well. And so this man is surprised by death, and it comes time for the moment of judgment. And God says, okay, not just how was your day or week or month, but how was your life? How did you spend it? What did you accomplish? What did you do? What happened with all of those plans that you had? And in the end, God says, you fool. Could you imagine getting that on a report card? John's attendance has been perfect, but he is a fool. We appreciate another year of John's employment. We appreciate his loyalty, but he is a fool. It's not an insult. The word fool is a specific word in the Bible. It means someone whose life is unchanged by God. That the existence of God does not change what I do or how I live or what I prioritize. So to be a fool is someone whose life is not changed by God. And God says, all of this that you did, your barns and your crops and your money and your plan, all of it, it goes back in the box, you fool. You've accomplished nothing. This man won at Monopoly. He had all the money and all the property. And he tried to buy a house. And God says, you don't understand life and you don't understand eternity. This fool's accomplishments are meaningless. And that's where the passage ends. 
So let's close in prayer. Just kidding. It's really heavy to end right there. It is heavy to think about that, isn't it? Have I wasted my life? It's not bad, but it's hard. But asking the question, it's like allowing the Holy Spirit to take the truth of the Scriptures and apply it to our lives in the same way that an MRI can scan what's going on inside. If you ever had an MRI, it's kind of noisy, it's claustrophobic, and can be a little uncertain. But an MRI is a diagnostic process. It looks and says, okay, this is what's going on inside. And now that we know what's happening, we can deal with it. And so looking at this passage, it can be hard to ask the question, but it's a diagnostic process where the Holy Spirit comes and says, yeah, this is what's going on, but now we can begin to deal with it. And so it's a heavy passage, but really there's only good news coming out of it today. Because either the Holy Spirit says, yeah, that's going on. You are spending your life in pursuit of comfort and wealth, and today is the day that can change. Or the Holy Spirit searches and he, and he says, actually, it's not there and the way you are living your life has eternal significance. So it's only good news. Either today is the day it gets better or it's been getting better all along. Because after the diagnosis comes a prescription. And next week, Ben, he's going to continue preaching in Luke and he kind of has the prescription half. So this passage today, this is the diagnosis. Is this going on? And next week is the, okay, so if that's going on, this is how you deal with it. So this week is diagnosis. Next week is prescription. So definitely come back next week. But the opposite of a fool is an apprentice. See, a fool's life is unchanged by God. But an apprentice says, Jesus, can I walk with you? Will you teach me? Will you shape me? Will you grow me? Even will you prune me? An apprentice is someone who spends their life in the process of being transformed by Jesus to become more like Jesus. So what we have is the opportunity to be apprentices, to be disciples today. So if the Holy Spirit nudges us and it turns out that indeed we are pursuing our comfort through wealth, and today can be the first day of significance. So I'm going to pray and say, Holy Spirit, we invite you to apply the truth of the Scriptures to our lives. Give us open ears to hear what you're saying and soft hearts to respond. Amen. So three questions here. First of all, do I need my wants? Do I need my wants? Jesus begins his discussion by saying, watch out for greed. It means to be on your guard, to be vigilant, to, const to be constantly looking out. It's like if you're driving on the Trans-Canada and there's someone beside you who's not staying in their lane. You've got a, an erratic driver. You're going to drive both hands on the wheel, maybe ready to honk. You're going to be watching them because at any moment they could come in and try and sideswipe you. And Jesus says, have that attitude of watchfulness. Be on the lookout for greed because it can pop in at any time. And what greed does is, is it shifts your wants and turns them into needs. See, the, the rich fool wasn't a fool because he was successful or practical, but because he prioritized his comfort above all else 
and trusted money to get him there. In the end, he was living a monopoly life. And it all goes back in the box. Now, it doesn't mean you can't want to retire. It doesn't mean you can't save for retirement. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy retirement. But it does mean that leisure and pleasure cannot be the goal of retirement. That leisure and pleasure, they can be there, but they cannot be the goal of retirement. And you might say, well, I'm pretty far away from retirement, so this doesn't really apply to me. Well, what about weekends and vacations? How much do we drive our lives to the moments where we can eat, drink, and be merry? How much time and effort and money will we spend just for that goal? So whether it's retirement or weekends or vacation, this cannot be the goal of our lives. I like to cycle. I have a bike. I have a good bike. I love my bike. But do you know what I would love? Another bike. Do you know what kind of bike I would like? A new bike. Because if I had a good bike, a new bike, a different bike, another bike, then my life would be changed. Then I could cycle more, I could go faster, I could be more fit, I could be in shape, I could live longer. And, and if I could just get that bike, if I could just, just get it, then my life would be different because I just need that, I just need. But actually, I have a bike. My bike is a good bike, and so this is not a need, this is a want. And so I find my heart so quickly sets itself on something, and it takes this want, and it moves it over into the need pile. And you start to say, I need, I need, I need. And maybe it's not a bike for you, maybe it's something else, but our heart can so quickly fall into the trap of greed, where our want becomes a need. And so I find when this gets too strong in my life, one thing that works really well is when I find that my wants have become my needs, to give something away. To find a need and meet it. Maybe to, to donate some money, to, to do something, because as soon as I move away from I want, or sorry, I need my wants and into generosity, it's amazing how the urgency of what I wanted turns down. And so I find that for me, that, that is something that helps turn down the volume of greed in my life. Secondly, what gives our lives significance? Looking back on my life, there's been five major times where I've had to make really big decisions, and it was go here and do this, or go there and do that. And huge, life-altering A or B, and once you choose, it's never quite the same sort of decisions. And there's been a lot of other stuff going on, but at the heart of it, almost every single time, a big piece of it is kingdom of God, or money and comfort. One example of that was when we were in Korea. When we lived in Korea, Emily and I were both teachers. We got there at a time where uh, we got quick promotions, we had good jobs, we were saving 75% of our income without even trying. The income tax rate was 2-3%, to 3%. we had 10 weeks of vacation a year, 
we were on fast track to financial freedom. And we had to ask ourselves, is this what God has called us to? To eat out three, four, five times a week, to go on two international trips a year, to live easy and have fun? Unfortunately, the answer was no. <laughs> That's not what God has called us to. And so we both resigned our jobs. We came back to Korea. Our son was born. We came back to Korea. Or <clears throat> we resigned our jobs. Our son was born, and we came back to Canada. And we went from two full-time teachers with no kids to two full-time students with a kid. That's a financial difference. And it's hard. But what tipped the scales for us is the reminder that everything we earn in this life goes back in the box. And only what's done for the kingdom lasts forever. And so for you, maybe it's not Korea. And maybe it's not seminary. But I imagine there's been times in your life and there might come again where you have to choose between kingdom of God or money and comfort. And it's hard. And those big moments can be tough, but I think it's the small moments that are even more sneaky. The ones that kind of creep in. The ones that if you believe that if you have a little more, you can do a little more. Now we live about 10 minutes east of here, and we've got a great place. But our place isn't big. And so it's full with six people and crowded with eight. But as a pastor... You know what would make me a really good pastor? Is if I had like a 2,500 square foot open concept living room kitchen. <laughs> like if I could have 70 people over, imagine the kind of ministry I could do. Imagine the lives I could change. Man, I would do so much for God. And if I had a home office that faced the Golden Ear Mountains, can you imagine the sermons I could write? And if I had $10 million, I could build a school in a different country. Wouldn't that be amazing, what I could do with what I don't have? See, the trouble with that is the rich fool had all the money in the world, and yet God said it has amounted to nothing. And the trouble is, is we can sometimes attach money or a purchase or a payday to our significance in Christ. That if I had this, I could do that. If I earned this, then I could be that. And we say, okay, my significance, my meaning, even my obedience is on the other side of a purchase or a payday. But instead of that, Jesus says, your life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Rather, in 1 Peter chapter, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, it says his divine power has given us everything we need. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. See, my significance, my worth, my kingdom impact doesn't come on the other side of a payday, it comes now. Because Christ has given me enough now, what can I do with what Christ has given me? Well, maybe I can't have 70 people over, but could I have two? 
Maybe I can't write a sermon in a home office looking onto the Golden Ear Mountains. But what kind of a sermon could I write at the blacksmith bakery at the uh, Langley Airport? Maybe I can't build a school in another country with $10 million, but maybe I could take $10 and give it to someone who is building a school. Because Jesus has given me enough. And see, this isn't a budgeting conversation. This isn't a financial conversation. This is a heart conversation. And we don't do better, try harder. But we say, Jesus, walk with me. Transform me. Help me become more like you. Finally, third question. Does God think I am rich? Does God think I am rich? Kind of a weird question, isn't it? Why would you say it like that, John? I mean, how do we know what God thinks? Well, the way we can know what God thinks is we ask him. Because our relationship with God is not hypothetical. We don't have a relationship with the idea of God or the stories of God. We have a relationship with the person of God. And so if we want to know what God thinks, we can ask him and say, God, do you think I am rich? How would the story of the rich fool have ended differently if he had involved God in the conversation? Hey, God, just had this huge harvest. I was thinking of building barns. God says, well, you've got like six hours left to live. Okay, God, I'm going to give some of this away. There we go. Involving God in the conversation would have transformed him. Now, what about us? How would it transform our lives to involve God in the conversation of what we do and what we pursue? We're going to do something a little bit weird now. So I'm going to ask you to just give me a little grace. What I want you to do is to grab something, grab a wallet, a purse, a credit card, a $5 bill, and hold it in your hand. So, so for everyone to grab something, to grab something that represents money. So a, a wallet, a purse, if you, a $20 bill, a $5 bill, whatever it is. If you don't have anything physical in your super digital, like take your phone and bring up the icon for your banking. You don't have to open your online banking, but just have the icon there. If you don't have any money, just borrow some from your neighbor. <laughs> I'm just, well, you can do that if you want. But, but hold it in one hand. And, and just think about what this represents. Think about how much of your life goes into this hand. And now with the other hand, and if you, if you could humor me, but just by holding it kind of like a scale, what I want you to do is, is imagine your treasure in heaven here. Now, which one of these feels like something? See, it's hard to see treasure in heaven. You can't hold it. It doesn't shine. You can't touch it. But I'm going to ask us a few questions. And then we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to kind of put our lives into an MRI, as it were. But looking at the two hands, which one do we rely on? for our security and provision? Which one do we think gives us a home and food? Which one 
will protect our family, our health, and our future. If someone was going to steal one, which would I offer? If someone was going to give a massive deposit into only one, what would I choose? And so, Holy Spirit, we ask, are we rich in your eyes? We ask that you would search us, that you would know us, and that you would convict us of sin, where we have trusted money, where we have pursued comfort, and that you would convict us of righteousness, where we have pursued your kingdom. So God, I pray that even as you speak, as you point out areas in our lives that you would not leave us there, but by your grace and your power that you would transform us, you would walk with us, that you would teach us to live lives of, live lives of significance. So we ask again, do you think we are rich?